You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds. This is our second week talking at Night at the Vulcan or Opening Night or Opening Night at the Vulcan. The best one. By Nio Marsh here. We are discussing chapters six to seven today. A very short stretch of this 11 chapter book. It is our second week covering it, and Herds is the one in the hot seat trying to solve it. It's true. I'm looking forward to the show where we say, and today we're doing chapters two to two. The murder. Just, just that chapter. Yep. The murder has happened. Mm. It was indeed Bennington. Yay. Boop, 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 boop. I'm excited. Herds, do you get the point? I don't for, know. For method? Maybe. I don't. We don't actually know how he died yet. Like we know that he was, he's got like gas going to his face, but like we don't know for sure that's the death method. We don't know. It seems too obvious. I don't know. It does. The question that I have though mm. is why the murder method is so obvious, but we're still asking questions. You know, uh, it is obviously the staple of the okay. murder mystery genre. Yes. Staples, yep. To have a murder method. That is a fake out for a more complicated murder method. Yes. But when the murder method is already remote from the scene of the crime, mm. what functional difference can we have by having a different murder method to the presented one here? Uh, that is an excellent question. I think that this method that we're presented with, that uh, our main man Bennington has been gassed, uh, is supposed to divert us towards... I don't know, more technically aligned characters would mm-hmm. be my suspicion. Um, like like Badger, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe obviously, that's what's going on here. I don't know. It, it's clearly supposed to allude to the the murder from before. Yeah. Um, and something that has been brought up, obviously we're not at the end of the story yet, so I don't know for sure, but we have brought up the the topic of, of superstition a number of times. Um, I definitely think that whoever is carrying out this murder has knowledge of you know, the previous murder, which is obviously because yes, they're definitely. all actors and they're all working in the theater. They've all heard the, you know, the, the story, but I have a suspicion that maybe that the, the killer is trying to play this off as a like supernatural event or as maybe, maybe something that is, you know, beyond the regular theater company's control. Um, I don't know. Like, I just think that, uh, actually something else that was, that was brought up that has been discussed, but not really answered Apparently there are new ventilation systems in the dressing room. So yes. I don't even know if all that gas in there would be sufficient to kill someone. Well, yeah, that's the thing is surely if they'd reopen this theater after a murder was committed using an inherent part of the theater's heating system, mm. they'd fix the heating system. You would assume so. Uh, and yet we find Bennington's body with gas pouring into his face. But Gay Gainsford survives despite yes. being in the dressing room area. So that's the thing. I think that the uh, the reasoning now that we've come all the way around to the point is that a more direct method of killing, like killing with a prop gun that's actually a real gun, or putting poison in your makeup, which I, I'm more convinced is the case here, is a much more direct and surefire way of killing someone. Um, like in the previous murder, it was literally that they pumped a bunch of gas in the room and then lit it on fire, yeah. which again is a much more likely way of killing someone. Um, if somebody is in their own dressing room and they smell gas, mm. they are likely to get out of there very quickly. Yes. Um, I do want to say, before we continue too much further yes. uh, with this story, 
Obviously, I have ended uh, this current week's discussion at chapter seven. Yes. Uh, but for those of you reading through at home, do feel free to continue on to chapter eight because I'll let you Different. know now, Herds. Uh-huh. Uh, the reason I stopped here is to give you more of a game. Oh, great. Uh, not necessarily because it's structurally the best. I think oh, that if you okay. actually if you actually were reading this for your own entertainment along with this, chapter eight would be a good point to stop. But I'm a little great. I'm a little concerned, Herds, that you might be too smart at this point. So I, I have look, to I have to metagame you. <laughs> look, I need every Every handicap I could possibly get. To exactly. Just, I'm just, I'm just to lose. You know, that's how it works here. I'm yep. just too good. I'm too good at murder mysteries. Now, um, the th- mm. the thing though that is prevalent through six, seven, and eight is mm. Alan. Okay. Is just barely a character. You mean seven, and that's it so far. But yes, yes, he is hardly even there. We're still looking mostly from the perspective of Martin Tan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she focuses a lot more on the reactions of the other characters yes. and things that they're saying. And all that Alan has really done is said, I will now look at the evidence. This is the evidence that I have seen. And then I will now question you. Where were you on the, the night of, of tonight? And they're like, you know, I, well, I, I went to do the lighting change and then I realized that Bennington wasn't here. So I sent someone down with a spare set of keys to like check on him. And Alan, he, he stands there. He says, mm-hmm. And Fox has his little notebook. And that's all that they do. <laughs> Which was really weird and interesting because in Stella Duffy's Money in the Morgue, Alan did a fantastic job of a hybrid therapist detective. Yes, yes. He directs as well as acts in the play that is The Money in the Morgue, whereas in opening night at the Theatre Vulcan, Vulcan Theatre, <laughs> I'm, I'm still going to get... Yo, we got to find the proper name. Opening yeah. night of the play The Revisit at the Theatre Vulcan that's the in one. West End, London. That's it. That's, that's the, the one. That's the full title of the book. West End, is it? There you go. <laughs> um, I can never remember locations. It's a it's a trap. It's West, End, West End is like the main theatre part of London, I believe. Well, there you go. Good I'm to know. I'm not the theatre expert here. Uh, You're meant true. to be. I don't know anything about London theatre. That's okay. fair. Anyway. Uh, he, he was directing in Money in yes, the Morgue, yes, whereas yes. here he is much more passive and very much just playing a surprisingly textbook detective for someone like yes. Nio Marsh. Yes. He, he's very much, I, I would say actually from a theatrical perspective, he is more of a hands-off director in this moment yeah. um, than he is, uh, a, you know, an involved playwright. It's, it's implied, I think, that Alan was involved in the murder from five years ago, so he has a personal stake in this, um, but it, it's not really about him. He's, the, he's here, but it's about these other characters who have all, you know, despised Bennington for various means. And uh, Helena Hamilton even says, you know, I haven't felt a thing all night. Like, I do not care. Um, and she frequently says, nobody cares, which yes. Gay Gainsford will say, but I care. Mm-hmm. Uh, hi. And she waves from the background and says, shut up, girl. You're, you're an idiot. You're insane. Yeah. Probably. It's such a strange comparison looking at the characterization in this book compared to Money in the Morgue because obviously we've been given so much more time to sit with the cast. Yes, and it's a much uh, smaller cast as well, Mm. which I appreciate. Um, They're really only, I suppose, I suppose nine if you count the protagonist, uh, Martin, but uh, there are are only eight characters. There's the six actors, um, uh, the playwright, Jacko, um, and then then Martin, of course. Um, I I feel like there is so much less detail to a lot of the characters. There's a lot more drama, um, but there's a lot less intrigue at this point. Well, I can tell you for a fact that I have not suspected Parry Percival or 
JC, is that his name? I don't even yeah, remember. Jux yeah. or whatever his name is. Those characters, they exist, but I could not for the life of you think that they have anything to do with the murder because they have, they've, they've hardly been here. Um, they've hardly done anything. And, and Miss Gay as well is like, she's important to the plot, but she barely has a character by, by, besides being the person who is crazy. Um, yeah. Adam Paul and Helena, um, and I, I would say Rutherford and Jacka all have very strong characters, but the mm-hmm. others don't really. Um, yeah. It, it's like, as, as I was saying last week, it, feel, it feels a lot more like a thriller. Sure. than it does a mystery novel, even after we've had the murder. Mm. You know, obviously we're still sitting here trying to find the culprit. Sure. But there's not as much, I think, depth to the mystery going on. Yeah. Because it's, it very obviously to me is going to be, oh, it's an alternate murder method. Here's how they did it and here's mm. who it was. There's not going to be some extraordinary twist, I think, yeah. at which, this point. Which is interesting because this is the, the novel that... Um, no, Marsh was was damed damed for. Is that the proper use I, of the I word? I believe so. Yeah, damned. She was pronounced Dame Nair Marsh, um, which is interesting because it, it doesn't seem to be. It's definitely not quite as uh, provocative, I suppose, as Murder on the Orient Express, um, and it's not as um, intimate as Money in the Morgue, for mm. example. But clearly, this is a novel that struck a chord. Either way, herds, we are going to put you in the hot seat shortly to make your final solution for this book. It is a tough one. You have two points on the line, but you've already kind of committed half of your theory. I th- look, I think, look, we're going in on the poison makeup idea. It's too good, especially as a, a play about theater. Like, it is the ultimate method of murder for, mm-hmm. a, for an actor or a, or a stagehand or so forth. Alrighty. Very well then, Herds. Mm-hmm. We'll be back in just a second with more on Night at the Vulcan. Or opening night. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER, your murder mystery world tour. We have been talking opening night at the Vulcan by Nio Marsh, delving into the world of theatre combined with that intricate puzzle-filled world of murder mystery that we call home. Right now, sitting opposite me, I have Chris Hamilton, president of the Hunters Hill Theatre here in Sydney, who I found out recently are putting on a production of Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Chris, obviously the world of murder mystery and crime fiction has very, very deep ties with the theatre. We're huge fans of local community theatre on the show, and we've had a lot of discussions about how the world of theatre is bridged, be it that, you know, closed circle, locked room mysteries are so compatible with the world of the stage and also this massive connection that we have between huge names like Agatha Christie and Nio Marsh connecting these two worlds. What is it you think that makes these two spheres of entertainment so compatible? Everyone loves a murder mystery and everyone wants to know the intricacies of how these things are put together. And, of course, Agatha Christie is one of the uh, prime examples of... of mastery at this and we've all I certainly all grew up with her books that's Mm. the first thing I got into with Agatha Christie I was given books to read and um and I think then to bring those books to life um 
is is an important thing. So we know that Agatha Christie wrote her wonderful novels mm. and then a lot of them she adapted herself to the stage. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the beauty of, of anything, that suddenly it's, you know, the book comes to life, it's visual, you can see it. And, yes, a lot of um, Agatha Christie's pieces can easily be set in a living room, a drawing room, um, or whatever. So I think bringing those characters to life and being able to watch uh, the actors performing the piece, so you see their reactions, how the how the plot is woven together. I think that's probably one of the most important things when you actually physically see the play. Yeah, I like that you talk there about the physical space of the mm. theatre and how it's very easy to set kind of that drawing room scene. We all know that wrap-up scene at the end of yes. every murder mystery novel where the detective <laughs> brings it in, yeah. and using that as a stage set piece is such mm. like such an excellent way to draw that in. And, and you that, see it now yeah. so often in television series, and mm. um, there's cute little um, murder mystery program that's set in the um, in the islands mm. um, and at the end of every episode yeah. <laughs> the detective brings the four or five suspects together to tell them what happened and who's guilty mm-hmm. so interestingly that that particular um, device developed back in the 50s or wherever is still being now used today. And it has such fantastic longevity, which yeah. really goes to speak how like flexible it is. Now, I wanted to talk a bit about The Mousetrap, which is mm. the production that you're putting on. This sh- this show, I believe, set records for being the longest running opening run of a play ever, right? It is setting records. Oh, it still is? It still is setting records. Oh my goodness. It is still being performed in England. Mm-hmm. It opened in 1952, a couple of years before I was born, <laughs> and uh, it um, is the longest running, continuous running play Mm. in the West End, if not the world. Um, Apparently, one of the um, clauses in the copyright for the play, when she wrote it, was it cannot be made into a movie Mm. until the play closes. (laughs) So we will all still be sitting here probably for another, in 10 years' time, talking about The Mousetrap. Mm. It it has become a... um, really a tourist attraction yeah. now for for um, people who go to London. So um, it's a very, very clever play. It's a great play of hers. And I think, um, without giving too much away, the ending is yeah. really a surprise. Obviously, you mentioned there the ending, and I know, having seen it myself, that the audience is traditionally asked when they leave the theatre to not spoil the ending. This play, having gone on for what, some 20, nearly 30,000 performances, I am still astounded regularly when I talk with other people about the play how few people have been spoiled on the ending. Mm. Do you think that there is a great ethos amongst the performers and the production teams behind these shows to kind of maintain that veil of secrecy on the ending? Absolutely. And we've, you know, from the beginning of rehearsals, we've all been talking about don't tell anyone the Mm. ending, don't. And we will actually be, you know, at the end of the show, after the curtain calls, one of the actors will actually um, reinforce that message to the audience and ask them not to tell the ending, which is apparently what happens in England in the production, that Mm. one of the actors every night steps forward, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Please don't spoil the ending by telling anyone. Yeah, and it's really fascinating because I think a lot of, uh, particularly our audience, because we have a very engaged with uh, murder mystery audience, they think that when we come into these famous novels, we know what's going on. You know, we we covered, for example, earlier this year, Murder on the Orient Express, mm. and our audience is like, how can you know this? How can you pretend that you're solving this in front of us? But I think in reality, there's something very interesting that goes on behind the scenes in murder mystery and clearly the world of theatre as well, mm. where performers and producers 
producers are also committed to keeping that special experience of being able to uncover things yourself for the first time. Do you think that that's something that crosses over the whole medium of theatre? Do you think that other people are as protective of, say, a huge show like Hamilton and the surprises and twists in there, even though it's a piece of history, technically? Mm, I think people go to the theatre... Certainly to be entertained. I think that's the first thing they're they're doing. I want to be entertained. And then if you're going to challenge them um, as well as entertaining them by making them think a little bit, Mm. um, really getting more involved with the characters, I think that's an important... I think that's an important piece and I think that's up to the production and the actors, the performers and the whole production team to make that engagement as strong as possible. Mm. Now, sometimes it's it's just there because of the piece. So, for example, you talk about Hamilton. I've been lucky enough to see it. Yeah. Of course, a show named after me. How could I not go and see it? <laughs> um, and it is I, – I have to admit, for the first 15 minutes, I didn't really comprehend – Yeah. I'd done some background, I'd done some history checking Mm. on Alexander Hamilton to make sure I knew who he was and Mm. what he'd achieved. But it took me a while to get totally engaged with it. But once I was engaged, I was very much hooked. So I think with any piece of theatre, how you can trigger that engagement very early on with the audience. Now, a lot of that's in the writing. Yeah. um, And then then how that's performed. Mm. So I think, yes... That engagement with the audience is absolutely very, very important and how you constantly keep that audience engaged, particularly with a murder mystery mm. because people are sitting trying to join the dots together themselves mm. if you're piquing their interest and how do you keep that interest heightened so that they don't lose interest before the denouement. Now, before we finish off today, I wanted to talk a bit about the Hunters Hill Theatre and community theatre here in Australia because obviously we have a very strong, if in my opinion, underrepresented scene here in Australia, because we have so many great local theatres, so many great local productions, but the only reason I found out about your production was just because of a banner that was along the side of the road of my regular commute here to the studio. Well done. (laughs) So very well placed on that banner there. But how can people keep in touch more with Australian community theatre, and what are the benefits of being in touch with your local theatre scene anywhere in the world? Mm, Thank you for that. So Hunters Hill's in a very unique position. We are 90 years old this Mm. year. We have been continuously performing since 1930. Started out as a small play reading group in someone's house Mm -hmm. and then they used to do staged play reading. Mm. So they would go and sit in a hall somewhere and charge people two shillings (laughs) to come and sit and listen to them read the plays. And that developed over time. Because of that, certainly within the Hunters Hill, Gladesville, Ride, Lane Cove Mm. environment, um, the, the presence of the theatre and the brand of the theatre has just grown by itself. We obviously use things like banners, the radio, thank you once again for having <laughs> us on, um, print media, of yeah. course, back in my day was the big thing and now, of course, with social media. So mm-hmm. we're continually looking for ways to make sure that people understand who we are and where we are and when we're performing. So mm-hmm. we do three productions a year. Um, this is our first production. Our second production will be the classic 84 Charing Cross Road and then the third production will be Jonathan Biggin's very funny play called Australia Day. Well, fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's a pleasure having you on the show, and we are looking incredibly forward to The Mousetrap and seeing your production of it. 
You'll be thrilled, you'll be intrigued, you'll be enthralled, all those wonderful things. Please Fantastic. come along. We are open, um, you know, with everything that's going on. Mm. Um, we're only a small venue, we only seat 100 people, mm. so, and we are taking extra precautions around making sure that the place is, um, is safe and a healthy place to be. So yeah. we would love to see you. Well, we will have links up on the podcast if people want to do it. Uh, we'll have links to your website. Is there any other ways that people can get on to on Good old-fashioned way. Pick up the phone. Uh-huh, fantastic. Nine eight seven nine double. All right, fantastic. There'll be links up on the website, 2ser.com slash death of the reader with a little hyphen in between each word of death of the reader there. If you're curious to check this out, Chris, thank you once again for joining us on the show. My pleasure. You're listening to Death of the Reader. It is opening night here at the Vulcan we are discussing Naomi Marsh's novel by that name. That's right. We're at Herds. the Vulcan. We're at the Vulcan right now. Flex and Herds come at you live from the Vulcan That's itself. Right. Here in the West End of London somehow. Yeah. How did we get here in the last 10 minutes? A plane, obviously. <laughs> a very fast. There's Bruce Goose. Up in. No. No. Terrible. So <laughs> we have a murder to solve yes. with a detective that has barely appeared, with a crime that has barely happened. Flex, what is this? What you've, is this you've mess? You've given me a, a bad hand. Let's put it that way. I'm I'm going to do my best here. Um, I think I have at least one solid lead, uh-huh. but I, I can't promise victory on this one. You, um, you definitely do have a bad lead, partially by design, but also because, great. honestly, what is going on with this book's mystery? It's, it's barely there. There's nothing mysterious that happens... Until chapter six. Yeah. And there's no detective until until chapter seven. It's and that's all strange. we have so far. It's very strange. It's a very strange thing. Like, we've talked about structure to death already, but, you know, the whole idea of not having the detective as the protagonist is a strange one. Yes. Um, one that is visited in the 2019 murder mystery film Knives Out, which has played to great effect. But... Uh, not one that I've seen in a lot of Golden Age detective mysteries. Usually you just follow the detective or their Watson. Yes. But they're so close together that you might as well be following the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, uh, I'm I'm a little I'm a little stumped in places, but I'm going to do my best here. I have been following the paper trail, so to speak, uh, in this novel. We thankfully have all of our suspects together in a room, so it's not too terribly difficult uh-huh. to to figure out the pool we have to pull from. Uh, that said, I don't think that it is the pool in the room. Okay. <laughs> that sentence took, took a while to soak in, but I think I got it. I think that Adam Paul is a pretty solid red herring. He is so obvious in Chapter 7. There's so many lines where mine's like, and then I thought that he turned coldly for a moment. Ridiculous. Out. Out the window immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Darcy and Percival, throw them out. That only leaves us with, uh, I believe, Hamilton, Jacques, uh, Jacker, that is, mm-hmm. um, and and the playwright himself, who I am currently leaning towards. Um, Dr. John James Rutherford. Dr. Dr. John James Rutherford. Um, because I, I was actually thinking it might be Jacker, because it's, it's all his backstage shenanigans, and so he has to have access to the props and the dressing rooms. Um, and one of the clues that we actually receive, uh, it's mentioned, uh, that Bennington takes a fall some point during the performance. Yes. And it is also then mentioned that he's missing some of the paint on the bottom of his chin, of his jaw. Uh, that leads me to believe, uh, also by the fact that there are makeup implements strewn across the table that he died while applying his makeup for the final curtain call. Curious. That is the implication that I'm reading there. I am pretty well set on the poison makeup idea. 
Now, the other clue that we have provided, uh, there are a couple actually in the actual crime scene. There are burn marks on the floor, which leads me to believe that evidence has been burnt. I don't know that that helps us actually figure anyone out. Um, but uh, the other is there's been a powder box that has been strewn everywhere. And we know uh, that Jacques actually told um, told Bane to go and powder his face. Now, the powder intrigues me because it is a clue that we only linger on for a moment. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm I'm led to believe that if the box has been knocked onto the floor, I think that's our murder weapon. I think that is not like generic paint makeup. I think it is the powder itself uh, that has killed Bennington. Um, and there is only one other character in this story who is closely tied to powder of a certain sort, and that would be Dr. Rutherford, who carries a snuff box with him. I think that he's using the snuff box. You think that the snuff is a double entendre? I think that he's stuffed poison into his snuff box. To uh, snuff out? Bennington? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what I think. All right. Which is strange because we see him puffing out of his snuff box even after the crime has been committed, which is a little bit weird. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe he's just going to die. He is the character who has the least to lose. Yeah, this is one of the very challenging things about me trying to throw a counterpoint theory at you here, is that everyone's alibis are so... Except for the people backstage. I should have opened with that. So obvious. All of the actors are on stage. Like, they have responsibilities, and Jacko is over doing on the prompt side of the room. Like... They all have places to be except for Rutherford. He's just up in his box and he says, twice, he goes down, he says, I'm going to go to the backstage. And then we get this like, you know, fever dream shot of him, like the world is topsy-turvy. He says, I'm going backstage to congratulate that girl on how good she's doing. Yep. And then we have multiple conversations before he appears on screen. I'm not saying that's him replacing uh, the regular powder box with whatever's in his stuff box, but that's probably what's going on there. Um, the yeah. question I have for you, though, Herds, yes, is you know obviously we've laid out why everyone hates Bennington, yes, and obviously Rutherford is one of those people, yes, and obviously Rutherford yes. has a very very open alibi and obvious time for yes, him to commit does. the acts that you are cl- accusing does. him of, yes. The question I have then, Herds, is why else then are we looking at all of the rest of the cast in so much detail at the beginning of the book? If it was Rutherford, surely we could have just cut half of the first six chapters. I mean, we could we could just have Rutherford as the only character in the book, but that would make him a little bit obvious if he is the killer. That's that's not what I'm saying here, Herds. The point mm. that I'm making is that we've still spent time on it, and surely sure. here in this wonderful fair play murder mystery sure, genre, sure, sure. This has to come around sometime at the end. Mm. And I'm a little I'm a little concerned that, you know, especially when we have something as significant as a rape scene mm-hmm. in the book, that this seems to have not factored in. Mm. You know, obviously we have some really, really weighty dramatic character moments. Sure. But we kind of boil it down to Rutherford's disdain. Well, that's the thing. As I said, like all of the characters have been set up to have a reason to kill Bennington. Yeah. Um, but it's a question to figure out which of them would actually kill him rather than, I don't know, trying to divorce him or suing him or yeah. firing him. Um, if, um, if I had to put my foot in the ground here, I'd say sure. that Rutherford sounds more like a uh, begrudgingly bribed accomplice. How, what would they bribe him with? Well, that's, that's money. Th- 
Like, I don't think he cares about that. He's so, like, attached to the arts. I think he cares about, like, the integrity of his play. Well, that's the curious thing, though, is that if he's concerned about the integrity of his play and he's murdering something on the opening night, is the integrity, the notoriety of having the theater go I down mean, twice in the, successive performances? The play's already ruined, I think, in his mind. Like, he seems completely uninterested. He, like, like when we see him in the box, he's already, like completely uh i would say angry well i agree what's going on on stage right i agree but i i feel as though his reaction is you know exaggerated to a peculiar point i feel like he cannot be the one pulling the strings here because surely he'd be more invested if he's invested in the arts in creating a better show when it seems that (laughs) You know, he's doing everything to many, the counter. You ever work with many playwrights? Um, <laughs> <laughs> some of those, some of those people and their egos. Um, the other thing, actually, there was something else that that might be involved in his his motivation. Um, when Bennington comes off stage, he actually says to to Martin, he he tries to apologize for something that he's going to do. Um, he says, oh, "I don't want you to think." And da 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 da. Um, I think there might be more to this than just the performance. I think that maybe Bennington is going to con- like confront Rutherford mm-hmm. or maybe mm-hmm. blackmail him or something. Maybe it's to do with the crime that occurred five years ago. Um, apparently, according to the testimony of the other suspects, uh, Bennington has been obsessed with this murder from five years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that he has some dirt on, on Rutherford. Uh, and so that's why he's been like, yo, I'm going to just quietly shut that man up. Um, and maybe this player was like the last straw in that relationship. Interesting. Interesting and curious. Yeah. Herds, I am terrified of your intellectual prowess once again. Am I? Coming up with uh, theories that make very little sense. Look, I gotta go for something. When we've had murder methods, and I mean, at your own discretion, you know, the gun show up, there's, you know, there's obviously something more going on here, I think, and it'll be exactly. very interesting to see how it unravels you know what? over the Look, course of the next if, week. If there's something else insane going on in here that I've missed, I, I call shenanigans. This is ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to be proven wrong or right either way. Either way, this has been our second episode here on Death of the Reader regarding opening night or night at the Vulcan or opening night at the Vulcan. Vulcan opening at the night or the opening night of the revisit at the Vulcan Theatre in the West End of London. I like it. It really rolls off the top. By Nio Marsh. That's it. There we go. (laughs) There's the stinger. Next week, we will be discussing chapters eight to the end of the book. Herds has two points on the line. Hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you with that solution next week.